Do you love narrative podcasts but don't want to listen to ads? Cast Media is now offering ad-free listening with a Cast subscription, Cast Plus. You get ad-free access to not only Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains, but also great shows like Opportunist, Vigilante, Good Cult, Nighty Night, Media Circus, and their new show, Lost in Panama. Along with ad-free listening, Cast Plus also includes bonus episodes and inside looks into making the shows. And this is just for Cast Plus subscribers. Find out more by going to castmedia.com slash castplus. That's castmedia.com slash K-A-S-T-P-L-U-S. As a heads up, today's episode includes depictions of cannibalism and other crimes and may not be suitable for all audiences. Colorado, April 16th, 1874. At dawn, a stranger emerges from the woods at the base of the San Juan Mountains. His feet are bound in rags, a patched woolen coat pulled around a bloated torso. He trudges, first through half-melted snow, then across a frozen lake, before a soft spot in the ice gives way. The figure clamps a pair of hands around his thigh, struggles, and rips himself free. He presses onto the trailhead on the far side of the lake. They make it. He and the rifle, the steel coffee pot, and the satchel strapped to his person. There's also a knife, the one on his belt, his safeguard. The path winds to the Los Pinos Indian Agency, and there, the man kicks open the door to the mess hall and collapses on the floor. The stranger is Alfred Packer, and he has a story to tell. But first, he needs help. Soldiers eating breakfast run to his aid. They pick him up and they feed him. Eggs, sausage, hash browns, toast, plenty of coffee. Packer wolfs it down like it's his first real meal in months. Which, you know, it is. That's why it all comes surging back out, messing up his frayed overcoat. He apologizes. It's been too long away from food and people... He's forgotten how to be civilized. The camp's commanding officer... General Charles Adams hands Packer a tumbler of whiskey. This time, Alfred sips gingerly and settles. In time, his harrowing tale begins to unfold. In November 1873, Alfred says, he was hired to lead 20 men from Utah to Breckenridge, Colorado. Gold. It's all anybody talked about. So much gold, the great-grandchildren of your great-grandchildren would never work a day in their lives. By January 1874, Packer had led a group to the encampment of Chief Uray, leader of the Ute people, in the Uncompahgre Valley of western Colorado. There, Uray warned them against continuing on. The snow and the storms, no one in their right mind would try such a journey. They must wait for spring. So the chief had offered the group a warm place to stay. Figuring the gold would still be there come spring, 11 of the men chose to wait out winter in Uray's camp. In retrospect, Packer wishes he had been one of those men. Four others had taken a long route down and around the mountains, while the remaining five, led by Packer, had pushed ahead through the mountains. They would go to Breckenridge against all caution and common sense. That's when things had gone horribly wrong. It was the blizzard that made it impossible. A wall of snow, more like it. Wind so fierce, it cut to the bone. In the mess hall... Alfred sets down his drink and stares at the floor. 
he'd gone snowblind, he tells them. And what did his men do? They handed him a rifle and told him to fend for himself. They ditched him in those mountains, half frozen, to die like an animal, that he had become a burden. Packer claims he spent months in a makeshift shelter, surviving off of roots and berries. All the while, the gathered soldiers drink up his every word. It's a story as good as anything they've read in a dime novel or heard around a campfire. And yet, they also wonder. Alfred Packer, he's not gaunt in the way you'd expect someone with his story of survival to look. But to be honest, he's a bit paunchy. But they hold their questions, and Alfred spends several days with them before making his way to Sawatch, the nearest town. There he takes a room in Dolan's saloon. He spends lavishly, too. In the first couple days, he burns through $100, or just over $2,900 today, on food alone. He also offers to loan $300 to the proprietor, Larry Dolan, after overhearing that business has not been so great. And every time he pays a bill, Packer seems to pull out a different wallet, which Dolan finds peculiar, but chalks it up to just another eccentric mountain man in his establishment. Packer proves to be quite the heavy drinker. Guzzling whiskey after whiskey, he shares his story right and left. And the details are mostly consistent. Before long, he starts bickering with some of the locals. It seems he's quick to fisticuffs at the slightest perceived insult. Throughout town, Rumors begin to simmer. Who is this strange man who spends recklessly, can't keep his story straight, drinks like a fish, and looks for a fight everywhere he goes? On the final night of April 1874, Alfred Packer sits at the bar of Dolan's saloon. It's a packed house that night. An old rickety piano banging out a tune in the corner. There's a sea of bodies, yet Packer is alone. The whole town is tired of his boasting, his winding stories from the mountains, and his hot temper. Nobody wants a fight tonight. So Alfred pounds whiskey solo, one after another after another. He's holding on to the bar for stability, his rifle strapped to his back, and his knife at his belt, as always. And that's when he hears it. Mighty fine Winchester you got on your back there. It's a familiar voice. And when Packer turns to look, a stocky man leans in close. It's Preston Nutter one of the prospectors who hired Alfred for the journey from Utah to Breckenridge. But unlike Packer, Nutter had the good sense to stay with Chief Uray during the winter. He'd passed through the Los Pinos Indian Agency and spoken with General Charles Adams, so he'd heard of the stranger who lived through the blizzard alone in the mountains. Thought I'd come to pay you a visit, Nutter says. But about this rifle, how did you come by it? Packer downs a shot and swivels around to face Nutter. He's told this story a thousand times, but sure, he'll tell it again. Shannon Bell, Israel Swan, James Humphrey, Frank Miller, George Noon, and Alfred. They'd been up in the mountains when the blizzard hit. Alfred stayed at camp while the others went to look for food. Swan had left his rifle behind, you know, in case anything should happen. Alfred never saw any of them again. Nutter's face makes no change. What kind of man leaves behind a rifle when he goes hunting for food? It's true. It makes no sense. But Alfred guesses that's what men with little smarts do. Preston Nutter leans even closer to Alfred, their noses nearly touching. A vein bulges from Nutter's neck. 
Israel Swan didn't give you that rifle. There's a hand now, resting on Alfred's knife in his belt. I had a friend once, Nutter says, name of Frank Miller, carried a knife just like this one you got here. Last I ever saw of him, he was heading to Breckenridge with a little weasel of a man I knew was going to bring nothing but trouble in this world. Alfred Packer swings at Preston Nutter, but he's too far gone to fight. His momentum pulls him to the saloon floor, and in the scuffle, Nutter presses a boot into his chest. Nutter stares, rage surging behind his eyes, and spits on Packer. And then, he's gone. Out of the saloon and into the night. But not before shouting something over the drone of the piano. The din of drunken conversation. You'll hang for it, Packer. I'll see to it. Within two days, Alfred Packer finds himself leading a U.S. scout back into the San Juan Mountains. They're retracing Packer's steps to the trail to search for survivors. Bell, Swan, Humphrey, Miller, and Noon. The men Packer says abandon him are gone without a trace. Though the winter is long and harsh, if Packer managed to survive, perhaps so did someone else. They'll take horses this time, and Packer settles into the saddle. He's ready, even if his face doesn't show it. He takes a deep breath, exhales slowly, and they head toward the mountains. What will be found in the mountains, not this day by Packer or by his escort, but by accident on another day, will shock the men of the Los Pinos Indian Agency, the people of Sawatch, and the nation. Today, it's a sordid tale, centered around one of the worst atrocities a human can commit. For months, years, and decades, people across the United States will obsess over the story of that disastrous expedition from Utah to Breckenridge. And how could they not? In many ways, these facts from history end up stranger than any fiction. But the question remains... Why? Why did Alfred Packer do the unthinkable? We'll get to that. But all you need to know is, Alfred Packer's got some explaining to do. History happened. The good, bad, the ugly. This is the underside of history. The lesser-known pieces lost in the bigger picture of time. From the creators of myths and legends and from cast media, this is Scoundrel, history's forgotten villains. We're Jason and Carissa Weiser. Join us every episode as we explore the dark, quirky, and bizarre history that you might not have heard before, but really should. Hey everyone, Jason and Carissa here. If you're enjoying Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating and review. Also, we'd love your feedback. Go to castmedia.com slash scoundrelfeedback and answer our survey. Thanks. You can listen to Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains, ad-free on Amazon Music. Here's an easy idea to spread a little more joy this holiday season. Aura frames for everyone. Name the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and The Strategist. Aura frames are the perfect way to keep all your favorite faces in one beautiful place. My whole idea of what a digital frame can be is changed simply because we have three Aura frames ourselves. With Aura, we have smart photo cropping, automatic light levels, free unlimited storage, fun interactions like cute emojis to show you love a photo, or sending congratulations. And we can share photos and videos from any device, anywhere in the world. No memory card required. Chris is a professional photographer, basically. So, Chris, no offense, I still can't believe how good our pictures look. They look like real prints. Oh, thanks. 
It's the high-resolution display. It's so good, and I can't wait to gift Aura Frames to all our loved ones this year. Aura Frames are easy to set up. Simply connect it to Wi-Fi and use the free Aura app to add endless pics and videos. You can also invite friends and family on the app as collaborators. And if you like, you can preload photos and a video message for recipients. And there's no need to wrap because every box is gift ready. This holiday season, listeners can save on the perfect gift and get up to $30 off Aura's best-selling frames. Just go to AuraFrames.com slash scoundrel. That's A-U-R-A frames.com slash scoundrel. These frames have been selling out every December. So get yours now before they're all gone. Terms and conditions apply. Special thanks to our sponsor, The Jordan Harbinger Show. This is a podcast you really should be listening to. And if you haven't checked it out yet, what are you waiting for? Jordan's show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, focuses around making you a better informed, more critical thinker. And it's all designed to help you come to your own conclusions about the world and what's happening, even inside your own brain. Each episode is a conversation between Jordan and a different, fascinating guest. So there's something for everyone. The variety is impressive. Maybe in one episode, it's a cinematographer who discovered a lost city in the jungle and made one of the most important archaeological finds of the century. Or maybe it's a hostage negotiator for the FBI with some tips on getting people to like you, which, interesting, but also a little creepy. I recommend Jordan's conversation with World Series poker champ Annie Duke on how to make decisions like a poker champ. There's also the one with Ed Lattimore on the superpower of ignoring social approval. I think lots of people, myself included, would benefit from that one. Yeah, so applicable. And that's the whole thing. Jordan always pulls useful, practical insights from each and every guest. Again, there's something for everyone. We really enjoy this show, and we think you will as well. There's just so much here. Check out jordanharbinger.com slash start for some episode recommendations. Or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The story of Alfred Packer is one of shifting sands. No detail is fixed, no motivation clear. Across the course of his life, Alfred himself details his personal arc in innumerable versions of his story. What does hold throughout, however, are the terrible things he did out of greed, jealousy, and panic to survive. Let's rewind to 1871. Alfred Packer, 29 years old, packs his cart and leaves Winona, Minnesota. It's a picturesque town nestled in the bluffs of the Mississippi River. It's also a place where Alfred never found his place, his own way in the world. Like many before him, Alfred heads west to take his future by the horns. He leaves without fanfare. No long line of goodbyes, no friends waving him off, no lovers pining for his return. Alfred Packer was actually born Alfred Griner Packer in Allegheny County, Pennsylvania, in the 1840s. But he never feels at home with his family. As he describes it, my people are nearly all well-off and influential. William Packer, once governor of Pennsylvania, was my father's brother. Asa Packer, the multi-millionaire, is also my uncle. My father is as wealthy as either of these. In Packer's recollection, his family has nearly everything, money and power for sure, but what they do not possess is a love that binds them together. It makes Packer feel like a loner. Where is his sense of belonging? At 12, Packer decides that he can take care of himself. He abandons home and drifts away, first to Chicago, then Minnesota, where he apprentices as a shoemaker. It's good work, steady work, and he shows a fine aptitude for it. It means his instincts were correct. 
he can provide for himself and live a life with meaning in the absence of family. Then there's the war. On April 12th, 1861, secessionist artillery fires on Fort Sumter in South Carolina. Just like that, the nation descends into unbridled chaos and its most violent war along the dividing line of the North and the South. Packer, now in his early 20s, joins the 16th Regiment of the United States Army, a unit that will go on to serve with distinction in the battles of Fredericksburg, Chancellorsville, and Gettysburg, where it contributes mightily to the Union war effort. Packer thrives in the Army. His blue uniform gives him a sense of pride and assurance he's never felt before. It's a place he belongs, a place where his talents matter and he can provide something that makes a difference. Life and death, it doesn't get more important than that. It's what he's been searching for, and he goes all in. The army is where Alfred Packer becomes Alfred Packer. One evening, in those quiet hours before heading to the front, when soldiers would give each other tattoos around a campfire, Alfred asked for his name on his chest, just above the heart. The needle presses into his skin, a prick, then a deeper pain than he expected. He clenches his jaw, minding it less and less that he's one of the guys and he belongs. A lieutenant swings by for a look. It's nice, he tells the amateur tattooist. Except you spelled it wrong. Never met an A-L-F-E-R-D before. Alfred looks down. A-L-F... Yeah. E-R-D. Alfred. Huh. Well. He laughs. It's not so bad. Actually, he doesn't mind it at all. He kind of likes it. And from that day forward, he becomes Alfred Packer. His time in the army is short. He fights in what he calls seven engagements. They're skirmishes, and he does fine. Maintains his discipline, holds the line. He fires when he's told to fire and walks away from each fight unscathed. After the seventh, however, he starts getting seizures every couple of days. Soon, it's clear he can no longer perform his duties. And army doctors diagnose Alfred with epilepsy. Packer insists it's just the aftereffects of a fever. It'll pass soon enough, whatever it is. But they rule him unfit to serve. And Alfred is medically discharged. It's 1862, and he's just been dumped by his beloved 16th Regiment before the unit reaches its highest glories. And yet, Packer doesn't give up. He enlists in the army again. But it's the same story with this new unit. He's taken in, given a uniform and a rifle, trained in tactics, then mustered for battle. But then the seizures settle in. He insists, he pleads, can they just wait out whatever this is? Instead, he's thanked for his brief service, given another medical discharge, and sent on his way. Alfred Packer is adrift again. This time, it hurts even more because he's known what he could have. The army gave him direction, purpose, expectation. What now? He floats around the Midwest, working odd jobs. Hunter, wagon driver, ranch hand, miner, trail guide. None of them stick. In fact, trail guide is probably the worst of all. He's just prone to losing his way. And that's how Alfred Packer feels in 1871, the day he packs up his cart in Winona, Minnesota, to go west. Helplessly adrift, lost, and lonely. He meanders his way to the Utah Territory, and by 1873, he's working in the Bingham Canyon Mine, one of the largest copper deposits in the nation. It's brutal, 
back-breaking work with long hours and little pay. Day after day, Packer watches the spoils of his hard labor, all the copper he's wrestled from the earth, fall crashing into a cart to make someone else rich. He's left one day older and deeper in debt. In his early 30s, Alfred knows his body can't hold up like it used to. It's his back, his hips, his knees. They all begin to creak and moan. And nightly drinks are all that seem to ease the pain. It's a story we know by now. Alfred heads to the town bar every evening, idling the night away with drinks and gambling. And when he's drunk, he picks fights. Scraps in saloons, alleyways and muddy streets, it becomes the norm again. One night, after losing a poker hand, Packer knows it. He's been cheated. No, he won't accept a loss. He kicks back his chair and leans across the table into the face of the guy who just stole everything. Where is it? Packer says. Where are you hiding that ace you just got? Careful now, the opponent says. Packer grips the man's lapels, reaches into his sleeves, puffing whiskey breath up his nose. The man pushes back. Packer better watch himself. Looks like he's starting something he can't finish. Oh, Packer grows large, his drinks running hot through his veins. He rips off his shirt, revealing a bare stomach and his tattoo. This look like a coward to you, huh? You tell me. The other man's standing now, too, and pulling a revolver from his waist. He aims right for Alfred, literally at the tattoo, pulls back the hammer, and fires. One shot. Packer feels it, then hears it. Two separate events converging to lay him on his back. Pieces of shouts and screams in the distance mixed with a flash of white, and then all fades to black. For two weeks, Alfred lays in the hospital. And when he leaves, he idles around Salt Lake City. Miraculously, the bullet grazed Packer's temple. He'd skirted death by mere millimeters. So now he's people watching on a bench with a bandage wrapped around his head. All the people stream by, all headed in one direction. They carry pots and picks, leading wagons and carts, horses and oxen, and they're all in a hurry. For the first time, young men are not heading west, but east to find their riches. There are stories of a bonanza strike in Breckenridge, Colorado. A group of 20 men pauses in front of Packer's bench. They're a mixed company of young and old, men who walk, ride horses, and lead wagons. Their crisp, clean clothes betray their inexperience, and they look lost. We'll never get to San Juan's at this pace, one of them says. He gestures to the flood of walkers all around them. All the gold's going to be gone. Fine country that is, Packer says in their direction, but none of them hear him. He tries again, louder. San Juan's make mighty fine country. This time, the group hears, and they're intrigued. This guy knows San Juan? That he does. I, that is, I do. I do. Even though he does not. Yeah, in fact, he's never been. But he sells it so well. And you're right. You'll never get there in time at that pace. But uh, I can get you there faster than any others. Someone from the group steps forward. He's stocky and tense. Every fiber in his being projecting skepticism. It's Preston Nutter the same man who will swear his life against Packers in a few months. Behind him stands Israel Swan with a fine Winchester rifle strapped to his back. This guy's a guide? Are they really to believe that? But Alfred knows something. The group is running out of time. Golden Colorado won't wait forever. Not with every prospector in Utah getting there first. What do you say? 
You want a guide or not? Packer cuts the group a deal. A $25 security fee up front, full payment when they arrive in Colorado. It's a steal. The group departs the next morning. It's the end of December, 1873, and they're heading for the mountains just as winter's setting in. It already sounds like a bad idea. And within days, the men fully regret trusting Packer as their guide. Why? For one, he shows up for the journey with absolutely nothing. No food, no supplies, no tent or weapons, or even real winter clothes. And tellingly, no map. When pressed on it, he claims he knows the way up top. You know, in his head, yeah. So definitely no need to worry. But decidedly, he does not know the way. They seem to go in circles from the get-go, passing the same landmarks time and time again. They go south instead of north, then west instead of east. All the while, Packer, their veteran guide, complains. It's unreal. Members of the party will later remember Packer as a whiny fraud. He doesn't like the food available, doesn't like how fast they want to go. He's upset there's not enough whiskey. By January, they reach the Wasatch Mountains on the western edge of the Rockies. There, things start to really fall apart. As Packer remembers it, provisions began to grow scarce. Snow fell heavily, and the boys began to grumble. They slow even more than before, and what would normally take a day or two in summer turns into a week. When food becomes scarce, they start supplementing their remaining barley with horse feed. There's not much game around because most wildlife has wisely retreated down the mountain for the winter or slid into hibernation. Israel Swan manages to shoot a badger one day and the crew cooks up a pot of horse feed barley badger stew. In their hunger, it might as well be a feast fit for a king. But tensions rise as hunger sets in again and everyone feels that one man is to blame, the quote, whiny fraud. Alfred Packer has led them into this travesty and whispers grow. Behind Alfred's back, the other men discuss abandoning their guide in the snow. They want to head back down the mountain. And then, on the banks of the Green River, where their wagons are frozen in deep winter cold, a change of fortune comes their way. It's a fresh trail that, in their desperation, they follow. It leads to an encampment of men from the Ute tribe, led by Chief Uray. Chief Uray cannot believe what he's seen. 21 men stumbling into camp, emaciated, icicles dangling from their beards. What have they done? Were they thinking, at all? The chief invites them to winter at camp. They'll be provided for, and once the snow thaws in spring, they can go to Breckenridge. As we all know, 11 of the crew accept the offer, including Preston Nutter. Four men still want to go on, but opt for the longer route that bypasses the worst of the snow. The remaining six are restless. They're up against the clock. Colorado gold will not wait, no matter how passionately the chief urges them to reconsider. Yeah, they understand the risk, and it's worth it. The chief draws a map on the ground. There are two ways to Colorado. A lower trail, the safer option, it takes them through a valley and herding grounds. Option two, an upper trail, through higher elevations and the deepest snow, over peaks, but direct. It's dangerous either way, but multiple times more so on the upper trail. Packer will later tell investigators that after talking it over, quote, we decided to take the upper trail, like the fools we were without snowshoes. When they leave, it's true that their coats are not warm enough, their 
packs are not as full as they should be. Even Preston Nutter warns them against heading out. But the group of six takes off anyway. They are Shannon Bell, Israel Swan, James Humphrey, Frank Miller, George Noon, and, of course, Alfred Packer. Of them all, only Packer will emerge from the mountains several months down the road. He'll think of this moment, the time they could have turned back but did not, when he returns to the mountains in the spring of 1874. He follows the army scout on a borrowed horse out of Sawatch. When they hit the mountain trail, they trade places, and Packer takes the lead. Time becomes both interminable and rushed. He's backtracking on the trail and reliving his terror once again. The feeling grows worse with every step, his throat closing, his palms growing moist. It's springtime all around, but Alfred can see the cedars and the birch trees blanketed in snow. The flowing lake is beautiful, but he sees nothing but the frozen surface. And then they're there. The place where Packer last set up camp in the early winter of 1874. He expects the site to be empty, but it's not. General Charles Adams, Preston Nutter, and a few others from the disastrous Breckenridge expedition step from the trees into the clearing. Two trail guides from the Ute tribe join them. Packer's chest tightens, his shoulder twitches. He turns his horse to escape the situation, to head back down the mountain but two more soldiers on horseback emerge from the woods and block his way. He must face the general. The trail guides peel off to begin the search, and Packer squares to the general. What's this all about? Drop the act, Preston Nutter says. Quit pretending you don't know what happened here. But Packer pleads his case. He's already told his story. They've all heard it. The guys abandoned him. They left him with just a rifle. Packer can't bring himself to relive the nightmare. Can this just be over? It's the details, though. The general can't get over them. They just don't hang together. The rifle, fine, he can buy that. But what about the wallets? What about the knife you have? Four men swear that knife belonged to Frank Miller. So what really happened, Alfred? Just tell us. I, I don't know. I... At that moment, the two guides from the Ute tribe return. In their hands, thin strips of meat. But the looks across their faces, the wide eyes, the quivering lips, this is not game, not meat from any animal native to the area. General Adams marches over and the guides whisper something into his ear. The general takes a closer look and his own face grows taut. He too understands what has happened. All eyes turn to Packer. Packer who is finally ready to talk. That night, in the office of General Charles Adams, Alfred Packer gives his first real confession. The six men, Packer, Swan, Miller, Humphrey, Noon, and Bell, left Chief Uray's camp in early January, 1874. They carried provisions for 14 days on the upper, more dangerous trail to Breckenridge. They, they should have known better, but they didn't and they were not prepared for the extent of the snow. Their food was the first to go. Every mile took longer than anticipated. Within five days, nothing was left. They dug through the powder for roots and rosebuds, and then one night, Israel Swan managed to shoot a rabbit. But it wasn't enough. Packer was so hungry he'd boiled his own boots, then wrapped his feet in blankets. You ever been there? Ever stuffed your stomach with leather just to get the pains to stop? 
he asked the general. Israel Swan was the first to die. It happened one evening, when famished desperation ate away at them from the inside. With no food, each and every one of them would face the same ending, a slow, painful death. Nobody wanted it. So when Swan went to forage for food, the rest of the group conspired to kill him. Miller, Packer, Bell, Humphrey, Noon. They all agreed to it, just like Packer. Hold up. Why? If we're going to do that, why him? He got you all the rabbit, didn't he? The general leans back in his chair. He was the oldest, Packer says. He had the fewest days left. It seemed fairest. So when Israel Swan returned, Frank Miller killed him with a hatchet. Packer claimed Swan's rifle for himself. The other men split up the cash among themselves. That night, they ate human flesh for the first time. Packer hated it, he says. Every bite was torture. But it was live or die up there, and he made his choice. Because Swan's body was too heavy to take on the trail with them, they buried him in a shallow grave. It was awful, but it took care of the hunger for a little while. Within days, however, it was the same story all over again. This time, in secret, Packer, Bell, Humphrey, and Noon decided that Frank Miller would be the next to go. The general raises an eyebrow. Same question. Why him? He had the most meat on him. Seemed second fairest. So they killed Miller with the hatchet in his sleep. This time, Packer took the knife. Again, the others split up the dead man's money, and they ate as much of the body as they could in a single morning. They cooked it over an open flame. It was tough and stringy, but they did what they felt they must. And yet, it felt different. Their guilt was a little less. They had to do this to get to Breckenridge. Humphrey died next. Then noon. Same deal. Hatchets in their sleep. At that point, only Packer and Bell remained. And they made a pact. They would not kill each other. Enough was enough. Packer looks at the general. I never should have trusted him. Why? Because when Packer returned from foraging one morning, Bell charged him. He had a wild, unhinged look in his eyes, Packer recalls, and he had that hatchet high above his head. Somehow, Packer sidestepped just in time, although both men tumbled to the ground. They clawed at each other, exchanging blows, struggling over the blade, cutting open their hands and their arms until until Packer managed to overpower Bell. In self-defense, he tells the general, he killed Bell with the hatchet. And then what happened? Well, Packer says, I put a couple of slices of thigh in my pockets and set off on the trail. Then, about a quarter mile in, from the top of the incline, Packer saw the Los Pinos Indian Agency. There was smoke rising from the chimneys, so... I threw that meat on the ground on the side of the trail, and I took off. He had done it. He'd survived. And he could become civilized again. His confession finished, Packer breathes a sigh of relief. The general is just finishing his notes when Alfred leans forward. He would like the general to add something to the report. Tell them all I did was survive. None may understand it, but they'll know it. Find me anybody else who would not have done the same. The following day... 
General Adams puts Packer in a search party back to the mountains. He's inclined to believe Packer's story, mostly because there's nothing else to consider at this point. But before he can make any definitive assessment, the general wants material evidence of what Packer claims. So Packer's leading a team of U.S. Army soldiers, local miners, and two guides from the Ute tribe back into the wilderness. He's under strict orders. Retrace his steps to the bodies, which he claims are scattered over dozens of miles. Predictably, the search party is a disaster. Packer leads them in circles, claiming he's unable to remember the route. It feels like a waste of time, and patience among the group grows thin. For two frustrating weeks, Packer leads them on a boondoggle through the San Juans, and nothing seems to jog his memory. Oliver D. Lutzenheiser, one of the members of the group, is the first to reach his limit. He accuses Packer of leading them in a wild goose chase. Packer is a liar. Lutzenheiser says Packer killed those other men, and he's too coward to admit it. Maybe they should go ahead and hang him right here, right now. As much as the soldiers agree with Lutzenheiser, they refuse to support an impromptu execution. But they do also agree that this search has gone on long enough. It's back to Los Pinos they go. They're almost back when Packer pulls a knife from his belt and attacks Lutzenheiser. He swings the blade. He's no coward, because a coward wouldn't do this. The soldiers subdue Packer before anyone is hurt. And General Adams orders Packer to be thrown into a holding cell until they can figure out the next steps. This whole thing has become very complicated, and the general needs a moment to collect his thoughts. It's in holding that Packer's story takes a turn. His story changes. He no longer claims that Swan, Miller, Humphrey, and Noon were murdered out of necessity to survive. The truth, it seems, is that they died from exposure. Only then did Packer and the others consume the dead men out of need. Except for Bell, Packer tells a half-asleep guard, I killed him because he deserved it. August 1874. John A. Randolph, an illustrator for Harper's Weekly, goes for a hike in the San Juan Mountains. He knows nothing of Alfred Packer, who is pushing his second month in holding at this point. The only thing on John Randolph's mind is relaxation. He's here from New York to de-stress and to hike. What? In the narrow confines of a gulch, shaded by pines and hemlocks, Randolph stumbles upon a horrific scene. Five bodies strewn in a line, each in varying degrees of decomposition and decay. It is a bloated mess of exposed skeletal remains. Their clothes are torn, and bits of flesh scatter the scene. For a moment, Randolph can't make sense of it. This isn't real, but it is. And soon he accepts that something heinous has taken place here. The air is sour and acidic and rotten, and the miasma settles in his nostrils. For years, the sensation of the stench and sight will revisit Randolph as a reminder of what he encountered on this day. Randolph rushes to Los Pinos. In scattered breaths, he describes what he saw in the mountains. General Adams, several soldiers, the town coroner, and Preston Nutter follow Randolph to the gulch. The coroner goes to work, and his examinations don't take long. Each of the five men died from, quote, extreme violence. Blunt force trauma to the head, probably something sharp like a hatchet, and the way the flesh has been torn, it's consistent with cannibalistic intent. Preston Nutter kneels by one of the bodies. It's unrecognizable, 
decapitated, taken apart. It's little more than a skeleton. But this one's wearing a black and red flannel shirt. There's a locket around the neck. It's him. Preston Nutter knows it without a doubt. It's his friend, Israel Swan. As the truth comes to light, both of Alfred Packer's stories fall apart. The group had not died separately over the course of weeks and miles, as Packer claimed. They were killed in cold blood by Alfred in their sleep in one fell swoop. He had murdered them, investigators conclude, for their possessions and their money. Packer had been snowed in following the killings, and he spent the winter at the scene of the crime, surviving off the flesh of his victims. The worst of it, though, is that the men died less than a day's walk from civilization. A mere hour's trek would have freed them from Packer for good. If one of them had stayed awake and kept watch, it's possible that they all would have lived. General Adams has seen enough and wants to bring this to an end. They return to the holding cell and charge Alfred Packer for the five murders. But when they do... Packer is gone. Vanished. And all that's left in his wake is the creak of a rusty cell door. The guards are tight-lipped. Nobody fesses up to how Packer escaped. The general suspects bribery, and Packer will later claim that the day John Randolph led authorities to the grisly scene in the mountains, there was a key pressed into the bread roll he was given for breakfast. He had taken that as an invitation to leave. Whatever the truth, Packer becomes a ghost in 1874. For nine years, authorities search for him across the West, but there's no sign of him anywhere. That is, until a stroke of luck on March 11th, 1883. On March 11th, 1883, Jean Cabazon, another member of the party who spent the winter with Chief Uray, recognizes Alfred Packer at a general store in Wyoming. He tells the sheriff, who contacts General Adams, who comes to Wyoming to see for himself. And there's no question, it's Packer playing his day. Turns out, he's been living under the name John Schwartz, and he gives up the act upon arrest. Colorado is quick to bring Packer to trial. But there, Alfred changes his story once more. He now claims that he did not kill Swan, Miller, Humphrey, and Noon. And they did not die from exposure. No. It was, in fact, Shannon Bell who killed those men. It happened one morning while the men dozed, and Packer was out foraging. Packer had simply walked into a crime in progress. And Bell surely would have killed Packer as well had he not defended himself. Everyone is skeptical. The judge, state lawyers, the jury, it puts Packer on edge. And he has regular outbursts and is censored by the judge repeatedly. When the state rests its case, it takes the jury little time to return a guilty verdict. And the judge does not mince words when he sentences Packer. In 1873, the population of Hinsdale County consisted of eight persons. And Packer, the man-eating monster, not only killed over half that population, but also ate their bodies. Therefore, Alfred Packer is sentenced to be hung by the neck until dead. The judge narrows his eyes, and may the Lord have mercy on your sinful soul. Preston Nutter is there in the court audience. For the first time that day, his fists relax and his grimace melts away. This is justice. Justice he promised to Alfred nine years prior. It doesn't bring back his friend or the others. 
but it holds Packer accountable for his actions. But then Colorado does not execute Alfred Packer for his crimes? Wait, what? Preston Nutter can't believe it. Yeah, the verdict and Packer's sentencing are overturned on legal technicalities. It's a matter of timing. The exact statutes under which Packer has been charged have been repealed and replaced by the Colorado legislature just days before Packer was officially booked and brought to trial. So, technically, he was convicted under laws that no longer existed in Colorado in 1884. Second, the Colorado Supreme Court rejected the death penalty as punishment for Packer. Colorado was a territory, not a U.S. state, when Packer committed his crimes. So, the Colorado Supreme Court listened to Packer's appeal and determined that criminals could not be sentenced to death by the state of Colorado for crimes committed before Colorado was actually a state. It means that both the conviction and the sentence are vacated. But that doesn't mean that Packer gets to walk free. He's still liable for the deaths of Swan, Miller, Humphrey, Noon, and Bell. He's rushed to trial again, this time for the lesser charge of voluntary manslaughter, convicted even quicker this time, and sentenced to 40 years in prison, five for each death. Surprisingly, by all accounts, Alfred Packer is a model prisoner. No fights, no outbursts, really no conflict at all. He spends most of his time crafting toys from horsehair and building dollhouses. All the while, he's adamant about his innocence. Packer strikes up correspondence and then friendship with a reporter at the Denver Post who writes a series of sympathetic articles suggesting that Packer is no monster. Rather, he simply did what was necessary to survive. The public relations campaign works. Slowly, popular attitudes shift and people grow sympathetic to Packer and his story. As the Los Angeles Sunday Times reports in 1899, quote, the passing of the years cooled their anger, and many of those who originally proposed hanging later advocated pardon. And now that 25 years have passed since Packer committed his horrible, self-confessed crimes, the great majority of the public is inclined to hold lenient opinions of him and to favor any measure or step that would result in his liberation from the penitentiary, where he has already been in confinement for 16 years. February 8th, 1901. Alfred Packer is paroled by the outgoing Colorado governor. He's served 18 of the 40 years of his prison sentence now. He's 59 years old, and he spends the rest of his days in rural Colorado, where he's known as a charitable, gregarious man with many a story of his life as a trapper. He continues seeking full pardon from the new governor, still adamant that he's innocent. On April 16, 1907, Packer writes a letter to the governor. I am dying, he writes, and I am innocent of crime. I wish to meet my maker without a shadow hanging over me. And so I ask that I be given an unconditional pardon for the crime of which I was convicted. I have asked of nothing in the past, but I want to die clear of the opinion of my fellow men. The governor does not respond. And one week later, on April 23rd, 1907, Alfred Packer dies of a stroke at the age of 65. He doesn't live to see it, but Packer's name is cleared in the ensuing decades. By the middle of the 20th century, Alfred Packer becomes a sort of Colorado folk hero. The stories of his atrocities shift from tales of horror to morbid curiosities, and then they turn into humorous, ironic allusions to Colorado's past. Like this, 
At the University of Colorado, there's an Alfred Packer restaurant and grill. It opens in 1968 with the motto, have a friend for lunch. There are also Alfred Packer days throughout the state that celebrate the frontier and survivalism. Even Trey Parker and Matt Stone of South Park make a comedy musical about Alfred Packer while students at the University of Colorado at Boulder. It's a total 180 across time, and you can see societal changes taking place. Murder is bad, yes. But this change in society over time, that's not good or bad, it just is. A heinous act with multiple people dead and a search for the truth. That was huge at the time. But time passes and we get away from it and how people feel changes. So now you have commercial light takes on something that sat very differently in a different century. The flow of time is interesting. And it's one of the things that's fascinating about uncovering history. It makes you say, wow, you know, how? And that brings us back to the main question at the top. How? How could Alfred Packer do the unspeakable? The will to survive can make a person do all sorts of things, good or bad. But the instinct for survival wasn't what pushed Alfred. It seems like there was a lot of hurt in his past. A struggle for a sense of belonging, the idea of finding your fit, is something we all wrestle with at some point. But what we do with that feeling and how we rise above it matters. For Alfred, he found belonging in the army, then lost it. Maybe his anger came out in the mountains. And maybe incarceration gave him another place to belong. Certainly did belong there. But maybe that long-term sense of a place to be made him realize that he could control who he is, independent of where he is. At the very least, it's a lesson that can be learned, even from this disturbing story. Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is executive produced by Jason and Carissa Weiser and Colin Thompson. Today's episode was written by Timothy L. Fosbury. It's produced by DJ Lubell, edited and sound designed by Anton Doty, and mixed and mastered by Matt Sewell. Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is a cast original podcast. Hey, everyone. Jason and Carissa here. If you're enjoying Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating and review. Also, we'd love your feedback. Go to castmedia.com slash scoundrelfeedback and answer our survey. Thanks.